to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness, leaving us feeling as if all of the beliefs that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering and the Christian life. The first two volumes, When the Stars Disappear and Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Mark's conversation partner is Carl K.J. Johnson. K.J. is a retired Marine Corps officer who now directs the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago, where he oversees programs that foster discipleship of heart and mind, specifically the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program. Today, Mark and KJ summarize the basic narrative thrust of Mark's second volume, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, and then turn to begin examining the suffering that has entered our world because of our first parents' rebellion. Let's listen in. Hello, Mark. Thanks for inviting me to be part of these podcasts. I'm excited to join this important conversation because I found your books to be quite instructive and I'm eager to unpack them. But before we dive in, it'd probably be a good idea if we reviewed the conversation you had with Paul Winters in episodes 8 through 15. It's great to have you a part of these podcasts, KJ. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. What Paul and I covered was essentially the prologue and the first two chapters of the second volume of my Suffering and the Christian Life series, which of course is entitled, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, Situating Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan. I wrote that book convinced that we need to feel that our lives are meaningful. We satisfy that need by framing our lives as stories. Even little children tell themselves stories so that they can understand who they are and what they're doing. A great book called Narratives from the Crib recounts that process by examining the stories a little girl named Emily told herself from the time she was 21 months old. She told herself these stories after her parents had left her room Mm. after putting her to bed which they captured on a tape recorder. This is way back in the 80s, which they captured on a tape recorder located under her bed. These stories helped her make sense of her life. Here's just part of one story she told herself, this being one that she told herself at 32 months. And Carl, by the way, who she mentions, is the son of a neighbor who attends the same daycare. Mm, So now, Emily, tomorrow, when we wake up from bed... First me and daddy and mommy, you eat breakfast, eat breakfast like we usually do, and then we're going to play. And then soon as daddy comes, Carl's going to come over, and then we're going to play a little while. And then Carl and Emily are both going down the car with somebody, and we're going to ride to nursery school. And then when we get there, We're all going to get out of the car, go into nursery school, and daddy's going to give us kisses, and then go, and then say, and then we will say goodbye. Then he's going to work, and we're going to play at nursery school. It doesn't take much reflection to realize that we also need to tell ourselves similar stories. 
for instance, our talking right now, KJ, is part of a story we can tell about how we met and became friends and how we shared a conviction, how we found that we shared a conviction yeah. about being called to help our fellow Christians become more deeply anchored in the truths of the gospel. Yeah, yeah, that that's a great example, Mark. I I clearly remember when we first met in downtown Chicago at the meeting of the Christian Legal Society. I'd been invited to sit in on some of their meetings, but when a mutual friend told me that I should meet you, I made it a point to attend the meeting that you'd be at so we could connect. I figured it would be a brief meeting, but before I knew it, we were having lunch and connecting in a real substantive way that has continued till today. As simple as that story appears, it turned out to be a very important one for me. It did for me too, KJ. Each of us, in order to feel our lives are meaningful, need to be able to tell a story, a more or less coherent story about our personal lives. These stories place us somewhere on a trajectory that begins with our birth, has a middle ongoing portion that we're in right now, and will end when we die. They are our personal stories, but we always tell our personal stories against the backdrop of some general story about human life, about what it means to be a human being, about what human beings can reasonably hope for, about what accounts for both the good and the bad that happens in our lives, and so forth. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. During my military career, although we may not have thought of it in these terms, we located ourselves in a particular story that gave us purpose and helped orient us when things went sideways. But more broadly, I would think that this is one reason why we sometimes talk past each other, isn't it? Yep. Would you say that someone informed by the Christian story might be confused or even frustrated when encountering someone who's telling a different story? I'm, I'm thinking of something like expressive individualism, which is a story that emphasizes that individuals must be true to themselves and says, follow your heart, quote unquote. My first encounter with that storyline came about 20 years ago when someone I knew followed his heart and he left his wife and child. His personal story came from within that more general story that he had to be true to himself. Is, is this what you're getting at, Mark? That's exactly it, KJ. And that's a good illustration because it shows that these general stories compete with each other. For instance, a Christian story, which tells us that we're, we were created by a good God to fulfill a specific purpose, is at odds with the secular evolutionary story that denies divine creation and claims we are just chance products of blind, meaningless cosmic forces. The Christian story claims it is reasonable for us to hope that if we put our faith in Christ's earthly work, our bodies will be resurrected when Jesus returns so that we can live forever with God. The secular evolutionary story rejects that hope as pie in the sky and completely unreasonable. The Christian story explains everything we encounter in life in terms of God's having created a good universe that has been marred by human sin. The secular evolutionary story takes life's goods and evils as ultimately unplanned events that simply work themselves out through cosmic, cosmic laws. 
Yeah, that's helpful. But maybe you could unpack that a little bit more for us. Specifically, I'm wondering, what does this mean for us? Well, we could put it like this, KJ. We live in a story, and a story lives in us. Mm, Okay. We live in a story. That's the personal story we tell ourselves. And a story lives in us. That's the general story about the meaning of human life that we accept. Mm. Now, we need both kinds of stories in order to live meaningful lives. Genuinely human life, insofar as it is anything more than merely animal life, is constituted by our belief in both a general story and a personal story. We live genuinely human lives, lives of meaning and purpose, only by understanding our lives Hmm. as framed by both of these kinds of stories. We can't live truly human lives without ingesting a story of each kind. In other words, as Jesus put it when the devil was tempting him to try to live a story that would have involved his disobeying his father, human beings don't, indeed they can't, live on bread alone. Our lives require more than biological food. They require a kind of intangible spiritual food, the kind that involves their living in terms of these two kinds of stories. Thanks, Mark. I, I love that image of spiritual food. And, and you're right, we need this framing for our lives. It, it seems to me that with the rise of secular humanism and evolutionary psychology, that the, the more traditional storylines have been fractured and even abandoned, leaving many with a sense of purposelessness and the need to create their own purpose. That, that's right. And yet there's even more to it than that. We need true stories, Hmm. stories that represent human life correctly. Uh With our personal stories, this means we need stories that are realistic about our talents and our circumstances. Hmm. In our culture, we often hear that, quote, you can be whatever you want to be, unquote. But it's just not true. I can't be a great marathon runner because my legs are partially paralyzed, You, KJ, probably can't be, and I don't mean to insult you by saying this, a great theoretical physicist. (laughs) It's not just a judgment that you've got a pretty normal human intellect. I don't mean an average human intellect. I mean just the normal kind of human intellect. (laughs) When most theoretical physicists have a really odd kind of intellect, it's not just a judgment on your intellect, although it does take an unusual kind of mind to do theoretical physics but it's also a judgment on your circumstances. You're too old, KJ. (laughs) There is something about theoretical physics Uh, that means that great theoretical physicists almost always make their greatest discoveries before they're 30. Well, no offense (laughs) taken, Mark, uh, because you're exactly right. I'd I'd be a terrible theoretical physicist. But I think you're making, uh, joking aside, making a subtle but important point that's worth punctuating here. Our personal stories must be based in reality, not our version of reality. Isn't that true? I like that way of putting it. Our personal stories need to be based in reality and not in our version of reality. That's exactly right. When it comes to the general stories that are the backdrop to our personal stories, believing the true story is even more crucial. Yeah, yeah. 
if the secular evolutionary story is true, then as the Apostle Paul said, we Christians who believe in a resurrection are of all people the most to be pitied. And that's because if we live as faithful followers of Christ, then as our Lord warned his disciples, we're going to be persecuted. As the Gospel of Mark puts it, we will be hated by everyone because of Jesus. And it will all be for nothing if the full Christian story isn't true. Yet, yet if that story is true, then believing the secular evolutionary story is disastrous. For Christianity claims that it is appointed to all human beings but once to die, and after that there is judgment. Judgment where our eternal destinies are determined by whether we believe the gospel. Well, this has been a great review of your time with Paul, but let's apply this to where we're at right now. What's the general story, that is to use your terms, what's the meaning and purpose of your project? So far, you've written two books and recorded 15 podcast episodes, but these just aren't about the importance of story or a simple review of the creation account. Please take a moment to remind us what you're doing. Well, what I'm trying to do in the second volume and give me understanding that I may live is tell the full Christian story so that Christians can live in the light of it. There are crucial details to that story that most Christians don't know. Some of those details help us to understand our lives in deeper ways. And furthermore, they should lead us to live more distinctively Christian lives. For instance, learning what scripture says about creation and rebellion, the first two parts of the full Christian story, helps us to understand why there is any human suffering, as well as why there's so much of it. Then the last two parts of the full Christian story, those parts are the parts of redemption and consummation, not only help us to understand why all human suffering will someday be vanquished for those who put their faith in Christ's earthly work, but it should also lead us as Christians to be willing to risk our lives for the gospel to be, as the earliest Christians were, people who by our lives and our open daily witness are turning the world upside down. Now, in recounting this story, I, it's important, I think, to say that I'm not trying to convince anyone that the Christian story is true. That's a different project. I hope it becomes apparent as people read the book and listen to this podcast that the Christian story is massively coherent. It makes sense of a great deal of human life. Yeah, And I wouldn't be a Christian if I didn't believe that, that in addition to its explanatory power, there is also very good reason to take it to be true. But one thing at a time, this second volume of my series is intended to help Christians understand the full Christian story in enough depth that it can inform and shape their personal stories. Just as the general story of secular evolution informs and shapes the personal stories of those who accept that general story, so the full Christian story should inform and shape Christians' personal stories. And yet, it seldom, it seems to me, informs our personal stories in ways that manifest itself in our day-to-day -day lives. Christians, I think all too often, 
seem to be living the same kind of life, in other words, living according to the same kind of story as non-Christians. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like where you're going with this, Mark. As you know, discipleship is near and dear to my heart, and understanding this general overarching story of Christianity really makes sense of our personal story. When someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer paints a radical, unambiguous picture of discipleship, it only makes sense when we know the full Christian story. Sounds a little radical outside of that. It requires us to locate ourselves in that Christian story and understand that we follow a long line of saints who've labored and suffered for Christ. Mm -hmm. I think the passages like the passage from Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting verse 32, uh, when the writer says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The danger here, I think, though, Mark, is that many of our listeners are probably Christian, and this may not be entirely new to them. So it it could be easy to dismiss this, the importance of this, uh, and, and, and how critical it is. Oz Guinness, someone I like to follow, says, contrast is the mother of clarity. So I think it might be helpful if you could explain how a non-Christian general story results in serious implications for our lives and how radically different it is from the biblical story so we can see the difference. Here's an illustration of the way that it works. Those who accept the general story of secular evolution take us at most— to be no more than the most highly evolved of the Earth's animals. And so they usually take the proper standards for human behavior to be consonant with, to grow out of animal behavior. Hmm. Sex among the animals is almost invariably not confined to a single heterosexual partner. And, of course, no animal can consciously and deliberately commit itself to a lifelong relationship with another animal of its species. Hmm. That means that any attempt to restrict it among human beings, according to the secular evolutionary story, any attempt to to restrict sexual behavior among human beings is condemned by those who embrace that story. Now that actually leads Simon Blackburn, a highly regarded British philosopher, to celebrate lust. Mm. Lust, he recognizes, and I'm quoting him now, is furtive, headlong, always sizing up opportunities. It's a trail of clothing in the hallway, the trashy cousin of love. Mm. But, he says, as true as all of that may be, he aims to rescue lust, and now I'm quoting him again, from the denunciation of old men of the deserts, to deliver it from the pallid and envious confessors of Rome and the disgust of the Renaissance, to destroy the stocks and pillories of the Puritans, and to lift it from the category of sin to that of virtue. Oh, wow. (laughs) Now, the full Christian story, in contrast, sees the sort of lifelong unreserved commitment that Adam made to Eve at the end of Genesis 2, to be part of what distinguishes us from the animals. Mm, 
We are not just the most highly evolved of the Earth's animals. God specially, intentionally created us to bear his image. And so the behavior appropriate to us is not simply an extension of the behavior appropriate to animals. Our behavior is to mirror the sort of everlasting, exclusive, covenantal commitment that God has made with his people. The New Testament books of Jude and 2 Peter expressly condemn our sinking to the level of animal instinct. And Psalm 49 calls us to be better than the animals. The full Christian story, in other words, serves as a backdrop for radically different personal stories about humanly appropriate sexual behavior than the secular evolutionary story. No, that that's good, Mark. You've you've pointed out the sorts of differences that I had in mind, and and then some. And and these aren't small differences, are they? They they amount literally to the difference between life and death. They do. They do. As Paul and I discussed, in choosing to disobey God's prohibition of their eating from the forbidden tree, Adam and Eve were actually choosing death by severing their spiritual lifeline with God. It was after they disobeyed that lust, as distinguished from love, which, by the way, is a distinction that Blackburn refuses to make, mm, yeah. since he says that none of us would exist if it weren't for lust, ignoring the difference between lust and love. It was after Adam and Eve disobeyed that lust entered the world. Wow, yeah. And that was why they felt they had to protect themselves by... Uh, protect themselves from each other by making waste coverings. And as the subsequent chapters of Genesis clarify, it was only after their disastrous choice that suffering entered the world. Yeah. Think, KJ, about the fourth chapter of Genesis. Okay. It recounts the story of their first son, Cain, murdering their second son, Abel, and then Cain's being banished by God to live a life of restless wandering over the earth far from his parents. That chapter only hints in a single line at the excruciating suffering those events must have produced for Adam and Eve. Mm. Then, of course, in the fifth chapter of Genesis, we get a long genealogy beginning with Adam of who fathered whom, all but one of the entries ending with the litany, and then he died. Mm. Yeah. So as we saw in an earlier episode, God's prohibition to Adam included that very strong warning that if Adam ate from the forbidden tree, then dying, he would die. Adam and Eve's disobedience is the root of all human suffering. And all human suffering, sickness, as well as the kind of shame Adam and Eve felt about their nakedness after they had eaten from the forbidden tree, as well as the kind of horror they no doubt felt when Cain murdered his brother and the kind of grief that no doubt accompanied the death of each of the patriarchs and that now accompanies the death of our loved ones, as well as any other kind of human suffering, such as the persecution of Christians that you noted from the book of Hebrews, KJ, all of that is, in fact, as we'll see in our next episode, a kind of dying through Adam and Eve's sin suffering entered our world, and now, through the sons of us all who descended from them, it accumulates. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're still reeling from the results of Adam and Eve's choice today, aren't we? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's worth noting, though, that we make we make the same kinds of decisions ourselves. I, it seems so easy to point to Adam and Eve and, and to their failures, but each day we face similar choices. And all too often we disobey and suffer the consequences. We may believe that as long as we're not hurting anyone, our choices are our own, but every choice we make impacts others for good or for ill. An obvious example would be my friend who followed his heart and stayed true to himself. His wife and son were powerfully impacted and their own personal stories are now stories of pain and loss and abandonment. And they're very likely stories of resentment, anger, and and bitterness. Yes, yes, that's right. Unfortunately, that kind of suffering is all too common in our culture because a lot of people think that they must be true to themselves. Mm. So here's where where we're now at. Chapter 3 of Give Me Understanding That I May Live opens by harvesting a couple of crucial insights from my chapters on creation and rebellion that should illuminate our Christian lives. It then explores what suffering is. And here's something that's really interesting, KJ. Virtually no one takes the time to find a characterization of suffering that covers all of its degrees and varieties. Hmm. Okay. I do that because without such a characterization, we can't understand all of the ways in which our first parent's sin and our own sin has damaged our lives and make them day in and day out less than what they should be. Hmm. We'll see that suffering is a pervasive feature of fallen human life. The fall of humankind through Adam and Eve's disobedience, KJ, is the first of the three great turning points in human history. That turning point changed human life forever. The second great turning point, our Lord's incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, opened the way for those who put their faith in his earthly work to escape the judgment that will fall on everyone else. Praise God. And the third turning point, our Lord's return at the end of this world's history, will separate the wheat from the chaff, God's children from all others, to present Christians as the bride of Christ. I cover those two turning points in chapter four of Give Me Understanding That I May Live. It's important to realize that the second and third turning points, KJ, don't simply cancel or undo Adam and Eve's sin. Hmm. Their sin, with its horrific consequences, can never be erased. But Christ's two appearances transform the human situation by defeating the evil of our first parent's sin through introducing a much greater and more complex kind of good. And as the Apostle Paul stresses in both Romans 5 and Romans 8, the suffering that every human being now encounters almost every day is intended to prompt us to look up and remember that the way life is right now is not the way it's supposed to be. It's intended to set us on a quest to understand how and why things have gone so wrong and then embrace the good news of the gospel as God's way of writing what we have made wrong. No, that's good. That's good. And I feel 
we've properly located ourselves in the story that we're telling right now. So, um, I've had my food on food on my mind since you mentioned that we must live on the spiritual food of God's word incarnated for us in Jesus Christ. So I'm thinking <laughs> this is a good spot to bring things to a close to set up for the next episode. So Mark, thanks for the discussion. And I look forward to being with you next time. Thanks, KJ. Looking back over the past few episodes, Mark and KJ reiterate how there are two types of stories, personal and general, that help us make sense of and live truly human lives. Just as our personal stories must be based in reality and not our own version of reality, believing the true Christian story is even more crucial because it's ultimately a matter of life and death. In future episodes, we'll see on a deeper level how massively coherent the Christian story is and how it helps us make sense of human life. As we endure suffering, a greater understanding of the gospel and the story of the Bible will help us to live distinctly different lives as we wait for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will make all things new. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Carl K.J. Johnson. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We'll answer listeners' questions as soon as we have enough of them to make up an episode, and we'd love to answer one from you. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and KJ, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear. When the Stars Disappear.